Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all very much for coming out tonight for this Middle East Centre lecture. My name is Robert Lowe, and I'm the Deputy Director of the Middle East Centre. Um, and it's a great pleasure to see so many people here this evening to see um, our speaker. The event tonight will run as follows. Um, our speaker will speak for <coughs> somewhere between 30 and 40 minutes, and that will leave plenty of good time afterwards for questions and comments from yourselves. Um, this lecture is being recorded. It will be podcast uh, through our websites. Um, please silence your phones. It gives me great pleasure to welcome my colleague, Dr. Joost Jongerden from Wageningen University in the Netherlands. We're very grateful to him for travelling over to London for this event this evening. Uh, Joost is Assistant Professor at the Rural Sociology Group and the Centre for Space, Place and Society at Wageningen University. He is also a professor at the Asian Platform for Global Sustainability and Transcultural Studies at Kyoto University in Japan. His research interests are socio-spatial and socio-political analysis with a strong focus on rural development. If you would like to tweet about tonight's event, and please do if you're so minded, the hashtag to use is uh, LSE Kurds. With that, I'll hand over to Joost. Please, welcome. Thank you. Yes, uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Rob. Uh, thanks for the uh, for the kind invitation. It was uh, a kind of an exciting uh, entry. We had to climb the wall in order to get in, and we were almost thrown out. But uh, here we are. <laughs> um, I'm glad uh, to uh, discuss with you the Rojava experience in the in the context of political thought of uh, Abdullah Öcalan and of the uh, PKK. And of course, it's always uh, a good opportunity. Uh, to come to talks like this, to catch up with uh, old and new friends and, um, well, to continue the conversation, not only at uh, this uh, meeting, but also uh, beyond. Um, what does that mean, the Rojava experience in the context of political thought of Abdullah Öcalan and the PKK? Um, the Rojava experience refers to an attempt to construct a non-state uh, democracy, or maybe in a less swollen language, to strengthen society against the state by developing its self-governing uh, capacities. And in a maybe more conventional language, it's about the art of citizenship, uh, the capacities to engage with others and in relation to others to develop the skills to govern ourselves. And this, uh, this self-government or the capacities to govern uh, together is informed by the thought of uh, Abdullah Öcalan. Uh, There's of course a debate about the character of non-state democracy or democratic autonomy and democratic confederalism, I come to the concepts uh, later, in uh, Rojava, or the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. And is this a model, or is this model, if we may call it like this, a strengthening of self-governing capacities of people at the local level, at the development of a non-state uh, democracy, or is this Leninist practice in anarchist uh, disguise? As some authors argue, uh, is Rojava the PKK laboratory, uh, the term is not mine, for developing a Leninist one-party statelet? Among others, this critique, or one could say disqualification, of the Rojava experience is based on so-called continuities 
of the PKK's alleged Leninist past in today's PYG and the model of democratic autonomy and democratic confederalism. Disqualifications of the Rojava model are often based on a, I would say, simplistic logic, namely its association with the PKK. And then the logic is the PKK is authoritarian, or even worse, Leninist or Stalinist, and the Rojava model is informed by the PKK and its sister organization, PYG, and the conclusion then is the Rojava model is authoritarian. That's a kind of guilty by association. I will engage with this debate. First, by looking at democratic autonomy, democratic confederalism, non-state democracy as a working practice. But I have to say uh, that this is mainly based on field research I have done with colleagues, or colleagues have done in uh, 2014 and 2015 in Rojava, and based on a uh, brief experience of myself in 2015 in Rojava. So the data for this analysis is not very, uh, let's say, contemporary. Um, the second way in which I will engage with that debate uh, on uh, about uh, the, one could say, the disqualification of the Rojava experience uh, is by an engagement or a discussion of the so-called PKK orthodoxy and um, the lack of real change in the 2000s. Um, so what I will do is discuss the issue of orthodoxy of the PKK and the question of a shift in the political and ideological orientation of the PKK from which the PYD emerged in 2003. I will also give some clarity about my own position. In Rojava and within the PYD, within the PKK, we see a sincere attempt to democratize states in the region, Turkey, Syria, and uh, beyond. A democratization which is based on the development of self-governing capacities of people. Is this paradise on earth? No, it's not. Of course not. And aren't there threats and dangers? Yes, of course there are. There are obvious threats from the outside, Syria, Turkey, Islamic State still, but also from the inside. Uh, the need for a more critical engagement and the will to develop by also looking at the bad sides and to look at failures, which um, um, we could say at the moment is um, not always there. Together with Ahmed uh, Akaya, I started to explore and discuss the ideological and organizational change within the PKK in um, around 2010, 2011. At the time, we did not really discuss the Rojava case or the Rojava experience. Um, it was not yet on our radar. Um, in 2010 and 2011, we did presentations at various conferences about the attempts by the PKK to develop what they refer to as a non-state democracy. And we, met, ma we mainly met uh, disbelief, dismissal, and also disdain. How could you talk on this new idea on democratic autonomy and democratic confederalism in a serious way? And how could we take seriously this PKK, Ergelon, uncomprehensible newspeak? And that was the response we 
got at the time at um, several conferences, um, both Ahmed, Akaya and me. No one understands it, not even the PKK cadres themselves, it was argued. Yet what was dis disqualified by many of our colleagues was taken pretty seriously by people within the Kurdish movement. It was even referred to as a paradigm change, not just an ideological change, a change but a paradigm change. And while ideology can be defined as a set of ideas that explain and lend justification or legitimacy to an actor's actions and convictions, a paradigm change refers to the principles informing this ideology. As such, a paradigm change can be defined as a radical upheaval in the way the world is conceived and perceived. In the case of the PKK, this radical upheaval is rooted in the idea of a distinction between state civilization and a democratic civilization. And while the old PKK ideology was rooted in the conception of the former, the idea of state civilization, the new ideology is rooted in the idea of the latter, a democratic civilization. And since this ideological change is based on the change in the principles on which the ideology is developed, it's referred to as a paradigm change. On the side note, this distinction between a state civilization and a democratic civilization is not typical for Ojilang or the PKK or the PYD, but can also be found in work of the historian Braudel, the anthropologist Clastres, the ecologist Bookchin, or the anarchist uh, Kropotkin. So instead of to taking this ideological and paradigmatic change as incomprehensible, we started from the very simple idea, or we, you could say the null hypothesis, that what the PKK or the PYD, its activists and militants, its leaders and rank and files, say and do actually make sense. And if things look incomprehensible to us, it's simply because we are too far away from it to understand it. And if one wants to make sense of something, it means one needs to get close, to study it, to read and to talk and to observe. The normal things we do, I think, as academics and researchers. And from the reading and the talking, a particular political vocabulary uh, emerges and um, in the particular narrative on uh, democratization within the PKK PYD movement and there are two concepts I would like to mention uh, here I already mentioned them before but these are democratic autonomy and democratic confederalism and democratic autonomy I would say refers to the right to assume decision-making responsibilities in a way the right to self-determination. And democratic confederalism is the idea of developing a network of local democratic assemblies as a principal form of social organization for the realization of this self-determination. Confederal, since it acknowledges the idea of interdependence. Democratic, since it does not surrender the principle of local control. So how does this look like in practice. Let's start with democratic autonomy. Ethnic, cultural, religious, collectivities or group have the right 
to organize themselves and take decisions about what they consider important for the maintenance or development of themselves as an ethnic, cultural or religious entity or group. As an example, Syriacs can decide about the establishment and development of institutions they deem necessary for the maintenance and development of their language or their belief. The principle of democratic autonomy implies that no collectivity is subordinated to another, no minority to a majority, and guarantees multiculturalism. However, decisions taken by any group may not be a violation of what are considered to be the foundational principles underlying the idea of democracy in Rojava such as gender equality or the right to self-organization. Thus, this restriction on decision-making, this restriction that decisions may not violate the gender equality principle or the right to organize, senior authoritarianism or domination. On democratic confederalism, um, on the 22nd of September, Three days before the independence referendum in Iraqi Kurdistan, there were elections in Rojava, uh, northern Syria, local elections, uh, elections for co-chairs for what is referred to as uh, communes, the, the basic administrative unit in uh, Rojava. And for more than 12,000 candidates, co-chairs for 3,700 communes were elected. And the commune is a key institution in Rojava, or the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria, as they, in principle, form the basic unit for self-government. It's how self-government at street and village level <coughs> is organized, where people ideally organize themselves under the coordination of co-chairs, of which one, one is a woman and one a man. And the idea of the commune as smallest unit for the organization of society was initiated from the beginning of 2014. So when my colleague, uh, Michael Knapp, um, and myself uh, started to go to Rojava, 2014-15. Um, when we went there, the commune was newly developing. The principle was to organize the executive from below and to give every individual the opportunity to participate in the mechanisms of decision-making. The size of communes in 2014 ranged from 7 to 300 households, with an average, we thought, of about 50. The density of the communes was higher in quarters, which was mainly uh, populated by Kurds, but there were also communes established in Arab and Syriac neighborhoods. We witnessed at neighborhood level how, for example, people were organizing justice. And let that be the example which I will focus a little bit in this, uh, in this talk. The justice system in the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria, or back then Rojava, is formed bottom-up giving great emphasis on participation and conflict resolution. The first level of the justice system is the commune. And the commune has committees, a youth committee, a women committee, but also a peace uh, or justice committee. 
and people can bring cases to the attention of the committee. The practice is that the Peace Committee will look at the case if both parties in a conflict accept the Peace Committee to handle the case. If there's no mutual acceptance or the problem cannot be solved, the case can be brought to what is referred to as the Malagello de Malagin, the People's House or the Women's House, which is an organization at uh, the level of a city quarter. A similar system exists, or maybe existed, in northern Kurdistan and also in Europe. Uh, Latif Tash, I don't know if he's here, uh, but he worked on the Peace Committee of the Kurdish Center in, uh, in London. And in the Netherlands too, where I come from, there's a Peace Committee of uh, the Kurdish uh, Center, or what's now renamed as the Democratic Society Association. And basically what they do is mediating in conflict, from business conflicts to domestic violence, but only when both parties agree upon the committee's handling of the case. Importantly, through mediation and judgments, new forms of morality are constructed. This becomes clear, for example, in the application of the Kurdish movement's gender equality discourse in divorce cases or inheritance cases. Yet also in business-related cases, committees tend to apply a social justice discourse, for example, by not only considering informal, formal business agreements, but also by incorporating in their judgment ideas of fair price. Ideas on gender equality or social justice do not fall from the sky in Rojava or in the Netherlands or in London. There is a very strong and developed educational system. And when I was there in 2015 in, in Rojava, education in the form of courses was widespread. And an important reference point was the work of uh, Ergelan. But back to the peace or justice committee. If the committee cannot come to a solution, that can be partly because of the complexity of the case, or uh, one party does not accept or appeals to the decision, um, the case goes to a regular court. And then the Peace or Justice Committee will also send its report to the court, explaining backgrounds and why it could not come to a decision. This is a form of mediation um, in the case of conflicts, which we may not be very unfamiliar with, I think, in um, at least not in the Netherlands, probably also not in the, in the UK, but which is pretty new for um, Rojava, for the region. And I think it's a fascinating subject to study in a comparative uh, perspective. And until now, little research, as far as I know, has been done on this in the context of Rojava or uh, in the context of, uh, of Bakur or um, the southeast of Turkey, northern Kurdistan. But let me take a step back and go to a more general level. Um, some while ago I talked to a UK YPG volunteer and he discussed or he talked about the healing effects 
of democratic federalism, the healing effect. And he called it the healing effect because um, he thought, or he witnessed, that democratic federalism brings people together. It is a peddling against the current of sectarianism and divisions, stimulating different ethnic and religious communities to work together. And again, if we could only do more research in the micropolitics of this, <coughs> this would be really fascinating. So far, um, what I wanted to say on democratic confederalism, democratic autonomy, and maybe if we have a Q&A, we can uh, engage with this more. What I would like to focus on in the remainder of my talk is how things, not how things work at the local level, but where the ideas come from. And what's the ideological or um, paradigmatic, or whatever you want to call it, foundation. And this will bring me to the PKK and the thought of Abdullah Öcalan. And the PYD, the motor behind the Rojava experience, emerged, as I said before, from the PKK in 2003 and oriented itself on the thought of Abdullah Öcalan. It's beyond the scope of the talk to go into much details about the PKK and the change within the PKK or its, uh, its formation. Um, so I will just highlight some things. And, um, and to start with from an English language publication, Liberating, uh, Liberating Life, written by Öcalan in 2013. And there he writes that the struggle of the Kurdish Tani movement, and I cite, entails cre creating political formation aiming to achieve a society that is democratic, gender equal, eco-friendly, and where the state is not the pivotal element, where the state is not the center. It's a going uh, beyond the state. And this going beyond the state is informed by a critical reflection and also a self-reflection on um, real existing socialism before it collapsed and of liberation movements um, and the PKK itself as a liberation movement. At the time of the formation of the PKK in the 1970s, the PKK took revolutionary struggles elsewhere as the relevant horizon for its own orientation. It was the October Revolution in Russia, the revolution in China, the resistances in Vietnam, Angola, Mozambique, in particular also Eritrea and other countries and regions around the world. Yet the socialist and liberation movements, um, the PKK says in its publication, or Ejelon says in its publications, did not fulfill their promise. And towards the end of the 1980s, the self-declared socialist alternative, the Soviet Union, collapsed. For the PKK, the collapse of the Soviet Union did not so much symbolize the triumph of capitalist modernity as the failure of an approach to liberate lives from chains of oppression and exploitation. This defeat in the PKK narrative formed an important background for a re-examination of the idea of socialism and liberation struggle, eventually resulting in a state critique and in an interview with uh, Duran Kalkan, um, who was there when the PKK was being formed in the 1970s, early 70s, now 
part of the PKK leadership, he says, and I cite, the PKK examined all the national liberation struggles. struggles. They liberated, waged big battles, millions were martyred, and eventually they won, but the gains were minimal. They reached their targets, but could not realize their principles. Adding to that the collapse of socialism, they positioned themselves as alternative. The Soviets had believed that the world only come to an end, that, uh, that oh sorry, the Soviets had believed that they would only come to an end when the world came to an end, and this affected their mentality. So we started the re-examination. This re-examination, if you closely read PKK publications, actually goes back to the 1980s. If you look at, for example, the first of May speeches of Öcalan uh, in the 1980s, you can see the emerging of a uh, critique on real existing socialism had the concept of the bureaucratic state, the development of the bureaucracy as a new class. He started to problematize this in the 1980s. So in short, following a critique and self-critique on the character of national liberation struggles and socialism, real existing socialism, the PKK started to question whether independence or whether a struggle for liberation should be conceptualized in practice as a state nation-state construction. And this resulted in a redefinition of the PKK's political strategy. Though adhering to the idea of self-determination, it did not tie this to the establishment of a state, but rather to the developing or the development of people's capacities to govern themselves. So the PKK disconnected the idea of self-determination from the idea of state dis uh, establishment and reconnected it to self-government. So in short, we could say that the principle is less state, more society, or even dissolving the state or the central state through the development of self-governing capacities. And that's what we see happening in Rojava. Not a struggle against the state, but a struggle beyond the state. And this is the background of the PKK, but also the PYD's rejection of the idea that self-formation, self-determination, can only take the form of state formation. When the PKK was established as a political party in the 70s, women were already present. And though other liberation movement, movements mobilized women too, the PKK started to take gender relation as a key issue in its analysis, challenging patriarchal relations both in society as well within the party itself. Gender equalities were not seen as a side issue to the struggle or to the revolution, but as a key challenge. And in the course of the 1980s, and particularly in the 1990s, the theme of gender inequality started to become a main ideological theme in Ergelan's work. This may be referred as the third or the first paradigm change within the movement. And the second paradigm change is the change towards non-state democracy. The history of civilization was represented as a history of the subordination of women, analyzed as an ideological or cultural slavery, a political slavery and economic slavery. And the history of this subordination of women was also the history of the dominant male, 
the strong man, and regarded as the foundation of state formation and economic exploitation. A struggle for equality in this PKK uh, narrative, uh, the struggle for equality, for freedom, for democracy and socialism, Urgell argues, therefore requires a thorough analysis of the way in which gender hierarchies have been created and institutionalized in the sphere of culture, politics, and economy. Because the struggle of, or the struggle against male domination is central for liberation struggle, women should organize themselves separately, Urgell and the PKK started to argue. Parallel to this analysis of gender inequality as an historical foundation for the production of other inequalities, a process of institutionalization of women struggles took place. And this started or materialized in 1987 with the establishment of the Patriotic Women Union of Kurdistan and continues today in the women's movement in Rojava. Change within the PKK almost resulted in the falling apart of the movement of the party in the period 2001 or 2000-2003. In that period, 2000-2003, there was a severe internal struggle over the change, over the issue of a separate organization of women and over the issue of a non-state democracy. In 2001-2002, the then PKK leadership wanted to put an end to the autonomous self-organization of women. But this was met with fierce resistance by the, resistance by the women themselves. And referring to the work of Öcalan, women defended their organizational autonomy, not to become subordinated to the approval of the PKK leadership. Öcalan more than the one dictating, was there, was the women's symbolic resource to defend uh, autonomy. And just as an illustration of the severeness of the internal struggle, uh, in 2001, um, there was an event which somehow shake up, shook up the PKK, and which was related to the decision of the then leadership to... Um, have all decisions by the women organizations um, to be submitted to the PKK leadership and to be approved before being accepted. Well, this was rejected by the women's movement. Um, and um, in 2001, overnight, as a protest against the decision, of the, PK, the, the decision then of the PKK leadership, most of the women in the guerrilla in the army uh, shaved off their hair and this created an enormous shock within uh, the PKK um, and was one of the reasons why the decision by the then PKK leadership to subordinate women organizations to the PKK leadership was withdrawn but I'm telling this just as an example to show that within the PKK there is also strong contestation, there is struggle, and there is conflict. Eh? It's not that, um, as it is often presented, 
that hierarchical organization in which everything is smoothly dictated from above. No, this is, there is a lot of struggle within the party itself. In 2004, um, different subject, self-organization was also practiced within the PKK itself. And the idea that there's not a, like a central state, a central uh, organization which determines everything, but the idea that things have to be done bottom-up, decentralized. Well, this decentralization in 2004 was quite radically implemented, uh, that radically that uh, at a certain moment it was not very clear anymore who did what, contributing to a fragmentation and almost uh, to the what is referred to be peak by PKK uh, um, cadres themselves, the falling apart of the movement, the falling apart of the party. And that's also a moment in which we have seen that decentralization and local organization has been complemented with forms of coordination. And the same, I think, we see in Rojava. Local organization, but also coordination. Um, well, uh, I'm, I'm almost at the end of my, uh, of my, of my talk. What I wanted to, 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 what, to, to add is... Um, that this whole debate, the struggle, the thinking about politics, ideology, etc., um, and the many references made, of course, to, uh, to Öcalan as the main ideological leader, um, that there is more than that. And if you look, for example, to the state critique, you see a lot of resemblance with the work of, uh, of Nietzsche. Yeah, we refer to the state as the coldest of all cold monsters. There's a lot of resemblance and inspiration of Ögeland from Wallerstein and Braudel. I mentioned them before. Wallerstein with his world system analysis and Braudel with the idea of the long durée, which uh, inspired Ögeland to develop his ideas of state civilization and democratic civilization. Of course, and obviously, the ideas of Bookchin, which helped Ögeland to formulate an alternative, or helped the PKK to formulate an alternative. In the 1980s, we see state critique, but not yet the idea what next, or what beyond, or what then. And Bookchin somehow the, uh, handed or inspired the movement to come up with this, these ideas of democratic autonomy and democratic confederalism, concepts which you find back in the work of Bookchin. The work of Maria Mies or Veronica Benhold Thompson and Claudia von Wellhoff on uh, gender issues and women as a colony. You see that coming back directly in the work of, uh, of Ögeland. Debate around all these issues is somehow, I would say, missing. Though I have to admit that the young generations of scholars is taking up the challenge and starts to discuss this. Scholars in Kurdistan, from Kurdistan, but also in Europe and the US. I will wind off. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, um, I was in Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, part of an uh, observation mission delegation for the referendum which took place on September 25. 
part of the uh, of the uh, uh, observations we did. And at referendum day, we visited polling station, but also we went to Kirkuk and we met the governor, who is a member of the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, uh, PUK. And we asked him, how do you see the inter-Kurdish relations? And many people asked the Kurds, or the Kurdish leader in the KRG, how do you see relations with Baghdad, or Turkey, or Iran, or the US, or Europe? Um, we, we asked them, how do you see the inter-Kurdish relations? And he said, the referendum is about Iraqi, Kurdish, <coughs> Iraqi Kurdistan's independence. And the Kurds in Syria and Turkey, he said, they do not seek the establishment of a state. But if they do one day, um, they can establish their state too. So in the future, maybe we get something like the United Arab Emirates, but then in its Kurdistan's form. Or maybe several Kurdistani states, like you have also several Turkish or Turkic states. In Rojava, we do not see this process of boundary marking and boundary drawing, but a more relational process at the establishment of a network of self-governing entities, separated and related at the same time, and an expanding network. It started as Rojava, it became the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria, included not only Kurds, but also Turkmens, Arabs, Syriacs, and also non-Kurdish areas. And it includes, I would say, today also parts of uh, Shangal, and maybe uh, in the future, who knows, also more Druze uh, areas in uh, the West. Uh, the Druze also started to discuss the issue of autonomy. So I would say the Rojava experience is an interesting experience. Interesting from the perspective of developing and deepening democracy, of a living together, of a making a life together possible while facing sectarian threats of IS, of Syria, of Turkey, Iraq, and others. And as such, it needs to be studied and critiqued, since, uh, speaking with uh, Marx, history develops by looking at its bad side. And experiences like the one in Rojava develop also by looking at their bad sides and not only praising the good sides. And that's why critique, which I disqualified at the very beginning, also needs to be taken seriously. But sometimes one wishes that the critiques themselves were more serious and substantial. Mm. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you very much. I've been following your work for a number of years, and it's a great pleasure to hear you presented in person. Um, that, was, that was very compelling, riveting, and I'm sure it's given our audience enormous food for thought for the Q&A to follow. I was particularly struck by your thoughts around the, the difficulties perhaps people, especially in the West, face in understanding these paradigmatic and ideological shifts and the complexities of the thought. Um, and practices emerging, and your point that we must get much closer to understand um, what exactly is happening um, amongst PKK, PYD, Rojava, um, and the political thought and, and practice that's happening out there. Um, this can be quite an emotive issue, um, questions of PKK, PYD, the experiment in Rojava. Um, as we may find in the Q&A to follow, uh, discussions can get quite opinionated and indeed heated. Um, but I think it's a great testament to 
the depth of your of your work on this subject um, and uh, and the balance you're able to provide in providing a rigorous analysis that that proves so useful to our discussion tonight and indeed uh, sets us off I think on what will be an interesting conversation over the next 40 45 minutes as we open it out to the Q and A which I will now do so um, Please, before you do ask a question, wait for the microphone to arrive because we are recording the event and we need the microphone to record your question. Um, initially, at least, we'll see how the questions flow, but please keep your questions or thoughts fairly brief to start off with as we have a very busy room and we want to get around as many people as possible. So we're ready to go. Would you please let me know if you'd like to make a question or comment and wait for the mic. There you are. I built you up and no one has a question. In the front here, please. Just coming down. Thank you. Get them rolling. Would also mind please identifying yourself and give any affiliation if you wish. Um, uh, hello, my name is Shivan Fazel. I am a Middle East politics student at SOAS. Um, I will start with the latest remarks, actually. Um, uh, you said that these demarcations were not existent in Rojava or in northern Kurdistan, what you have felt in. Uh, in Bashur or in Iraqi Kurdistan. Why do you think it's the case uh, that the, these demarcations do not exist in Rojava or uh, or actually why is the case in KRG's uh, political leadership's perspectives that if the Kurds in the other parts want to have an independent state, they can go on and establish one for their own, but not being part of our, let's say, is it, is it something, how you can qualify it? Thank you. The, the demarcations in, uh, one by one? Yeah, yeah okay. Take the the demarcations in, in, in the sense of border making? Yeah. Okay, well, probably the most simple answer is that the political ideas uh, within the Kurdish, Iraqi Kurdish movements and the political ideas within the Rojava or um, broader, let's say, PKK, PYD uh, movement are very different. Uh, the KRG or the KDP PUK, the political movements in Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, they think, let's say, more traditional in terms of a state system and establishing a state system. And all the energy is also oriented to that, uh, to the development of central government structures, while at the, um, at in, in, let's say, in Rojava, or in the PKK movement, the idea is to develop or strengthen self-governing capacities within, within society. And I think from both political, let's say, currents or ideas, uh, very different practices emerge. Please, front row here. Thank you. Uh, University Exeter. Um, Thanks for your 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 uh, your talk, Eust. Um, as I think, uh, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about. And since the experience of the state in the Middle East is is of many authoritarian states, and so this what you've outlined is a very interesting example to create, in a sense, an alternative for the peoples of the Middle East, and perhaps with wider uh, implications elsewhere, as you mentioned, even in London and Amsterdam and so on. Um, and I was wondering if you could sort of, in a sense, the, I, I, one thing I, I read was that they're almost, the PKK and so on, 
are looking, they regard the nation-state as a terrible 19th-century European idea. They want to go beyond. Um, but what are the constraints to this kind of movement in terms of what they want to develop in terms of social principles in that they are in a world of states and in which uh, being recognised as state sometimes can have help you develop in terms of getting investment or protection. So how do they go about that? How do they deal with that issue? They want to develop this new form of society, but what are the constraints in developing that in a world of states? Very good question. It's a very difficult question also to, uh, to answer. I think, let me say what I think, and maybe there are others who might, might want to add something to what I say. But I, I would say that um, the first thing to take into consideration here is that the PKK movement or the PYG, that they do not say that they fight against the state. So their direct object is not the state. So um, they want to go beyond the state, but not by addressing the state directly. What they try to do is develop uh, those self-governing uh, capacities at, uh, at the local level. Um, we could say, pragmatically, that to some extent this can go together with the existence of a state. Hey, we have seen the development of these practices in uh, northern Kurdistan or Turkish Kurdistan over the last few years, though they received a heavy blow with the uh, recent warfare, which started in 2015. Um, but also in, uh, in, uh, in Syria, we see that the PYG, or the Rojava experience, does not frontally uh, attack or affront the central state, what they want or what they uh, try. Yeah? Is that because at the, moment, at the moment the state is in a sense withdrawn from there, but once the state yes. if it tries to regroup, then they could face a threat from the state. So at the moment they have an autonomous space, but at some point they might have to fight the state. Yeah, but we we also have the autonomous space, so to say, in the in the KIG, but a very different, uh, but a very different one. Um, but um, well, um, this is this is this is how far I can I can get. Yeah, the the uh, development of the self-governing structures or the autonomous structures, the local uh, local self-government government, government uh, can exist within an existing state but at a certain moment of course it starts to well it starts to contradict each other uh, i don't know if we arrived at that moment uh, yet in particularly because of the specificity of the situation we have in uh, in in rojava where there is no uh, where there is no central state the problem of legitimacy or the problem of recognition we see it of course at various levels eh? the um the PYD or the Syrian Kurds, re re represented by TEFDEM or the PYD or YPG, they have not been invited to Geneva. But then again, we could ask the question, is that because they have that alternative structure? Because other non-state groups in Syria have been um, uh, invited to uh, Geneva. So the question is also a little bit, 
to one extent it's the non-state character which does not bring them recognition, or that there are other factors which contribute to the fact that they are not completely recognized or not being invited to established fora. Yeah. We've got a couple of questions at the back, and for the forward to the gentleman far back with the pen in his hand. Thank you, first. We'll take a couple now. We've got four lined up, and then. Um, at the moment, the movement's united. Oh, would you mind introducing yourself? Oh, yeah, please? sorry. Uh, I'm Joe. I'm a Middle Eastern Studies and Arabic student at SOAS. Um, and yeah, uh, at the moment, the movement's um, united around resistance to external threats and then uh, the development of the movement. Um, like taking a long view how um, is the mo movement uh, prepared to resist the allure of populism and authoritarianism and other threats to direct democracy? I'll take another question. Come a little bit further forward on your left. There he is. Yep, thank you. Um, I'm a law student at uh, Queen Mary University. My name is Amartya. And I don't know how many uh, South Asian observers are here in this room, but I'll ask the question that's obvious to us which is that during our own national movement, we had this very same question about what, what form the state or whatever should take. And the, one of the reasons why a state solution was chosen was this sort of administrative anxiety on the behalf of like, progressive forces in our society, that if, it, if a progressive change is to be carried out, that it must reach everyone Otherwise, there will be this sort of geographic arbitrariness where one self-governing community has not yet come to uh, in incorporate those mm -hmm. fundamental values. And how does this play out in the Kurdish? Um, Very situation? useful comparison. Thank you. Would you like to take those two? Did you get the first one? I didn't get the last one, to be honest. The last one, I think, was making the point, I think, that... The democratic confederalism, democratic autonomy, they are for the benefit of all. It's yeah. not just for ethnic Kurds or people who live in northern Syria. There was a similar thinking going on in South Asia around the time of independence from okay. the British. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me start with the first, uh, with the first uh, question. I think that the, um, if you look to the, uh, to, the, uh, to the PKK movement and the PYG and all the others which are around that, there are many parties, organizations, etc. But when you look to that movement, um, one of the most important principles, I think, is that they develop themselves on basis of um, their own strength. So what they do is organize, 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 organize. And what they do is educate, 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 and educate. They're very strongly internally or, uh, oriented. Uh, they're very strongly oriented towards organization and education building up a movement. They are not, uh, I would say, if you compare them, for example, with other organizations, or the leftist organization, or liberation movement, socialist party, whatever you want to call them, they are not very polemic. Hmm. They are mainly oriented towards developing themselves. They are not reactive, they are productive. And I think it's in this productiveness and in the development of their own forms of organization with the development of a committed uh, cadre that they are able to face external threats or that they are able to face populism uh, and 
authoritarianism from the outside. Um, the reaching of everyone, um, if we look to the to the experience at the moment in uh, in, uh, in in Syria, um, democratic confederalism or that idea of self-government, non-state democracy or developing society is not uh, something which is only uh, which we see only among the Kurds. We also see this among the Syriacs, we see it among Turkmens, we see it among Arabs. The first thing which happened when, uh, when, when areas are liberated from IS, or even before they are liberated from IS, um, there is a political process starting. So uh, we, we, we mainly focus, I think, uh, or what we mainly see, I think, is the YPG or the PYD as a very strong military organization fighting IS. And they are the boots on the ground, uh, the cliché. Uh, but more importantly is that YPG, also the YPG, is very strongly political oriented. And, and the PYD, of course, also. So it's always the political process which precedes the military process. Because in the end, they also know that a victory, so to say, on the battlefield is only a victory when uh, you manage to develop political alternatives. So, so this is what they very strongly focus upon. And what we see at the moment is um, the, uh, the, 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 the idea of the democratic organization, democratic confederalism, whatever you want to call it, is also being uh, practiced, thought about in uh, non-Kurdish areas by different uh, groups. That's very interesting. Can I just push you on that briefly? Can you see, or can you envisage these ideas spreading to areas which are, which and which the YPG are not operational. Is, are we aware of any evidence of this? I mean, are these ideas taking hold elsewhere in Syria? Do, do, do we have any evidence? Do we know? Because it seems to me there, there's a fairly deep-rooted opposition amongst much of Syria towards the Kurdish project as they see it, and, and deep hostility to it. Yeah. Regardless of the merits of the ideology underpinning it, they see it as an ethnic project, yeah. and that reason alone makes it very problematic. Yeah. Well, we see that when, when, they, when they pushed the IS from Minbij, mm -hmm. with the establishment of the Minbij Military Council, we have seen that with the offensive in, in Raqqa, with the establishment of the Raqqa Military Council, um, and these are military councils. But, but as I said, the political groundwork is also being, uh, is being done, is being organized um, in the context of these, uh, of these battles. And these are non-Kurdish non uh, areas. And of course, uh, the YPG uh, is an important force also in Raqqa and also in Minbij. But it's uh, what we also see, and in particular we've seen that in Minbij, and I think we will also see the same in Raqqa, that the YPG will gradually withdraw and that we see that the locals will take over because this is the basic idea that the YPG is not there to stay. It's not in their, in their intention, but it's also, it also does not fit in, uh, in, the, in the political 
program they uh, they 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 preach. So they they they, they will withdraw and they will will um, transfer the responsibilities, the organization, etc., to, uh, to the local organizations. But uh, as far as I understood, we, uh, we also see at the moment discussions among the Druze mm. about uh, autonomy. And uh, maybe they will, they will choose for their own form of autonomy or opt for their own form of autonomy in the context of a, uh, a, a new Syrian federal or whatever kind of state it will, uh, will become. But it's also in, influenced by what's happening in, uh, in Rojava. We have seen, of course, also the, um, the, the spreading of the model, if we may call it a model, to Shengal, mm. among the, uh, the Yazidi, mm -hmm. where they are organized uh, according to the same principles of uh, democratic confederalism and autonomy as we see in Rojava. Thank you. More questions we had. Gentlemen here, then there, then there, and there. We've just had our first, first female hand went up. <laughs> well, first one I've seen. Gentlemen here, please, and then there, and then the lady in the front. I can assure you this is, this is not gender-oriented. Please. Um, Sami Hadai, I'm an uh, anthropology student, SOAS as well. Three talkers from SOAS. Um, just uh, two small comments on things that were discussed a bit earlier. Uh, I think, first of all, the reason why the PYD wasn't invited to the Geneva talks was a Turkish veto. There was a strong Turkish veto on their, their, their participation in the negotiations. Um, another thing, I think there are a lot of similarities between the self-governance mechanisms in Rojava and the rest of Syria, a lot of areas in Syria, uh, especially opposition held and um, also like besieged areas. <coughs> the model was, I think, brought forth by Syrian anarchist Omar Aziz uh, back in 2011, and it was adopted uh, predominantly in opposition-held areas throughout Syria. Uh, mm. I think, uh, I must admit, like that it's not as politicized or ideological as the Rojava experience. Uh, but still, there are a lot of similarities, and I think the, the basic divide is on a political level, because, for, for a lot of reasons I can't get into. Uh, but apart from that, um, I think there are a lot of discrepancies on the Rojava experience the extent to which it can be authoritarian and the extent to which it can progress uh, emancipatory politics. Um, so, for example, uh, in 2013, the constitu constitution that was uh, put forth in Rojava identified the YPG as uh, formal and the only military force to defend the whole uh, district mm -hmm. and communes of Rojava. And this was a um, uh, sort of a new thing in the PKK or Jananis movement as a whole because previously you had guerrilla warfare uh, and fragmented military factions. You never had a unified army with one flag. Uh, and this was perceived by many uh, people within um, the PYD or uh, Tevdem movement as a threat, as a possibility of... Uh, um, uh, sort of like a, a, an authoritarian tendency. Um, the Kobani experience was very similar to that because Kobani was besieged by Thank ISIS, you. but there were lots of underlying um, like uh, 
political issues. Thank you. That's, I'm sorry to hurry. We have quite a few people lined up. Yeah, You've got sorry. three points there. Um, Do you want to so wrap up? My basic question is, through, through your experiences or um, uh, field visits in 2014, 2015, what kind of trends did you see that were dissimilar to the previous PKK movement in northern Kurdistan? Thank and you. what do you think are the basic threats of uh, the Rojava experience turning into an authoritarian? Thank you very much. We've got those. Well, let's just take another one because we've got quite a few lined up. Just on there we are. Yes, thank you. You were next, and then the lady in the front here. Thank you. Uh, uh, I'm a visiting fellow with uh, European Council on Foreign Relations and a PhD student in uh, Cambridge University. I just came back from uh, Rojava, actually. Uh, I was in uh, Rojava the, on the day of the Iraqi Kurdish referendum and also on the day of the local elections there, and I had uh, observations which are very relevant to what you've uh, spoken to already. I, I agree. I think we don't have much time, so I just wanted to put a few questions Thanks, Gunnar, yeah. um, headlines from my uh, observation. Uh, first, I mean, very quickly to reply to the former uh, question. Uh, I mean, YPG is not the only military force uh, on, mm -hmm. on the ground. We have SDF, which has an, has an umbrella group, has different groups, including Syriac Military Council, Shamar, uh, you know, standard forces, others. Um, but uh, I agree that, that that's a difficult uh, subject because you need to have some sort of coordination in military structure. Because if you have rival military powers, then uh, I see it's very difficult that you know it can uh, how you can. Uh, continue the system in a, a successful way. Uh, my, uh, you know, one observation to, to you, Robert, uh, you, you said it's perceived as an ethnic project uh, in your question to, uh, used. Uh, in my observations on the ground, uh, you know, talking to ordinary people, uh, fighters, uh, shopkeepers, uh, others, I find them uh, using less ethnic language than many meetings I've been to in, in, across Europe. So Rakhavis ne do not necessarily refer to uh, you know, PYD as Kurds. And uh, in most conversations, it was me who was introducing the word you know, Kurdish uh, in, in the conversation. They were re referring to PYD as you know, in Membich, in Talabiyat, in uh, Rakha, they were referring to PYD as his as a party rather than you know, as an ethnic group. And I have some uh, other uh, observations on that too. Uh, and uh, one interesting thing is the cadres. I mean, the role of the cadres is, uh, is an irony or mm. is a problem in, in, in this model uh, because you have cadres going into, uh, let's say, Mendesh and other areas talking to local forces, but also uh, they're so uh, key to the success of the system because they are cadres in... Uh, YPG in uh, political administration and economy administration in each part, and they talk to each other, and that's the real uh, kind of efficiency of the system. They, uh, so that might seem a bit problematic, but what one thing to mitigate is, is the communes uh, that they're setting up. So uh, it's a bottom-up system in that way, you know, cages coming in, talking to local actors, but also a, a top-down system, sorry. Uh, but also establishing bottom-up structures, uh, kind of. So what we need to watch is whether this model uh, goes to uh, bottom-up structure as it is uh, professed, or uh, mm -hmm. uh, way. My question, very quickly. Go on, please. I, uh, so I was on, in Rojava on the day of the referendum, uh, the opposite of your observation. What I see is this project the least successful in Rojava. I've seen it, it was you know, more successful than I expected among Arab populations. Least successful among the, uh, how, how I can describe, pro-KDP uh, mm. masses in Kamishli and other places. So on the day of the referendum, they took to the streets, mm -hmm. you know, uh, 
they hardly sign up to, to the YPG, hardly sign up to any communes. They firmly yeah. reject the system. And uh, they're the one group uh, SDF uh, finds it difficult to uh, move yeah. into. Thank you, Guinea. That's very helpful to introduce the, the, other, the other curves in the room, the other question that hasn't yet come up. Would you like to tackle any or all of those in any order you choose? Your questions are, YPG well, is the me... only force, authoritarianism... <coughs> Well, I, I think I, guess I fully agree with what uh, what, uh, what Guinea Yildiz uh, uh, said about the, uh, the military organization. There's not one military organization. There are many military forces, but there is a, a form of military unification or military uh, coordination. And um, some would say that this is preferable over the militia system and uh, rifle militias which you see in other parts of uh, of Syria but what we also see in the uh, in the KRG region where you have different uh, Kurdish militia two main militia of the PUK and of the KDP which hardly communicate with one another and which is perceived in uh, the KRG region as one of the main main problems um, so we have in uh, Rojava the different military organizations, but somehow they are, uh, they are unified or brought under a central coordination. Central coordination, um, bottom up or top down, uh, I, I, I think we will see both. Mm -hmm. And um, um, it, it's not possible to only have local organization. You need coordination uh, too if you want to address problems which are, um, well, which you cannot uh, address at the local level only. Uh, so in, in, in that sense, uh, the, 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 the development of a coordination also in the Rojava system or the system of democratic confederation is, uh, is unavoidable. And it's also what we see, what we see, uh, what we see happening. That brings me maybe also to the first question which was raised about the assemblies which we have seen in other parts of, uh, of Syria. That's absolutely true. I think if you look in 2011, the different regions in Syria, you had local assemblies which somehow took over uh, control of the Ba'ath uh, regime. But none of them, none of them uh, survived uh, penetration by jihadi groups. And I think all of them have been... Uh, have been uh, have been uh, defeated. You can come back in that afterwards to get him on that. Anything else you want to pick up or we'll go around? We've got quite a few yeah, hands up now. Yeah. Lady in front of you, be very patient, please. And then, yes, and I see you. And then at the back, and then at the back. Got you all. Okay, please. Uh, my name is Eje. I'm working as teaching fellow uh, in the Department of Gender Studies at LSC here, actually. And thank you very much for conducting this research, despite all those discouraging and dismissive comments, first of all. And my question is about the gender relations. I was wondering if there are any kind of clashes or contradictions between the legal system uh, has recently been established by the communes or houses and uh, the pre-modern, like more like Islamic laws and uh, regulations, and if particularly regarding women's rights, and particularly women's uh, rights to inherent agrarian land. Thank you. Very, very clear. And then another lady 
along the aisle on the left on the side. Thank you very much. Uh, I only wanted to... Would you mind introducing yourself, Estella? Sorry? Would you mind introducing yourself? Uh, Estella, I'm an activist for the Kurds for many years. Uh, I want to come to the issue back of history and the movement because uh, when it emerged as part of the student movement in the 70s, uh, end of the 70s and so on, uh, yeah, there was, you know, the whole position that the Kurds had to confront within Turkey itself. And I wondered in relation to the emergence and how they were challenging and they were part first of the, uh, you know, Turkish movement. If this wasn't the start in a way, if this is not related to the subsequent history of the movement starting to challenge why they are emerging as a liberation movement. Because what happened for example, when you're talking about the 80s in the, uh, uh, in the, uh, when the PKK was actively fighting in the region and when uh, <coughs> uh, Ocalan had to move to Syria and they were up in the Baker Valley and they were fighting and, you know, starting already then to discuss the ideas which were very contrary to the liberation movements while actually continuing with a certain policy of independent state. But I remember that, uh, you know, for example, the women and Sakine Sankis, you know, were discussing ideas around alternatives to the, you know, to building a state, you know, already in the early days. So I, I wanted to ask, have you got any Evidence of that, have you, uh, have you investigated to this historically very important area, okay? And, uh, you know, uh, have you been able to come to see the connections with the Turkish state as uh, being a particular, uh, you know, at a particular development of a late nation state? and how this relates to the development of the movement. Thank you. That's so, great. And very briefly, the second, the second issue very brief if you the will, of the HDP yep. and the northern uh, and the uh, experience of the PKK and its position versus the state in Turkey, because here we have the success story of challenging the state to build a democratic movement led by the Kurdish movement based on those ideas. And I think it's very important for people to see that. Even Thank so, you. Yeah. That's very helpful. Yeah, no, we've got that. That's very clear. Thank you. And there's a man at the back at the side. And then, yes, back far left, we've got you. Thank you. Uh, hi, my name is Jimo. I'm studying international relations at SOAS. I'm also a Kurd from Russia. Uh, my question is, um, can it be argued that um, the ideas and um, narratives of Abdullah Ocalan and Rojava um, be called um, post-hegemonic, so it doesn't require hegemony anymore? Or do you think that it does require some form of hegemony? Um, and by hegemony, I mean a, a balance of coercion and consent and possibly cultural political coercion. I'm, I'm not talking about military um, coercion. Thank you. There's quite a lot there. Would you like to take that little group? Okay. <clears throat> uh, 
Um, very short. I think uh, about the, the legal system. Um, w when we were there in Rojava, and also my colleague in 2014 and 15, uh, it was mentioned that um, they had cases which were related to domestic violence, to um, divorce, and also to, uh, to inheritance. Um, but we were not there uh, to follow up uh, the, the handling of the cases. And that's also why I said in my talk that it would be very interesting to have people doing research in the region, which is, of course, very difficult, um, and to look at, uh, well, the, 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 the micropolitics around this, these kinds of uh, cases. But um, at, at the moment, I, I, well, myself, I cannot answer your uh, question. I don't know if there are others in the room which have the, uh, the on-ground uh, information, the empirical data on basis of which they can come up with an answer, but I'm, I'm very afraid that I have to disappoint you, that I, I, do, not, I do not have the answers to this question. But uh, the fact that uh, they themselves came up with these cases as important cases they had at the moment to engage with was, um, was interesting. Um, Well, that's the question. It is. Well, well, yeah, but maybe, maybe that's that's a way of how we look <laughs> at uh, justice and justice systems. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Um, on the PKK and the and the, its emergence from the movement in Turkey, or the revolutionary left from which the PKK emerged or originated. Um, we, we could say that, uh, that, that in, in a sense we see three important breaking points or um, differences between the left in Turkey at the time, 1970s, and uh, the PKK. One of them is the issue of Kemalism. Um, Kemalism was a very strong, uh, had a very strong ideological influence over the left. The Kemalism itself was, in most uh, political parties, left-wing revolutionary parties in Turkey evaluated as um, progressive. And this was challenged or rejected by the, uh, by the PKK. Another difference, which is maybe a difference not on, on ideological level, but more on organizational level, is that um, the PKK put a very strong emphasis in the beginning, not on action, but on, uh, on organization and education. That were the main things they engaged with. They didn't rush into actions, as we have seen with many other left parties, organization, groupings, also Kurdish organizations in the 1970s. And maybe importantly is, uh, of the, the third one also not unimportant, is that the PKK um, did not, as most leftist parties did, subordinate all the contradictions or inequalities towards the issue of class. 
Uh, we have seen, if you, if you look to debates in the 1970s in Turkey, for example, about the issue of uh, is Kurdistan a colony or not, uh, this is, in general, not in all, but in most leftist parties, rejected on the basis of the issue of class. So struggle uh, on basis of an cultural subordination or colonialism is subordinated to class. And in the PKK, we see the recognition of multiple inequalities which are not subordinated to one another. So class, but also colonial subordination were both uh, conceptualized as different, equally important, maybe also related issues. And from there, I would say that for the PKK, it was not a very big step uh, conceptually to start to theorize gender equality also as an equally <coughs> important inequality which needed to be addressed. And they did it more, and at least what we could say is that they did it much um, more thoroughly than all the leftist parties uh, in Turkey uh, at the time and in the decades uh, after. Um, from the HDP, we have seen, of course, an important challenge. Um, maybe the most important challenge is that they succeeded in making an opening to the left in Turkey, to liberals, uh, an opening from the HDP to uh, Turkey's leftists and liberals, where the AKP was not able to make its opening towards the Kurds. So we see here that uh, I think that the AKP was very clearly politically in the uh, defense. And this also, I think, informed uh, Erdogan, informed the AKP to, um, to abandon any idea of a political resolution of the Kurdish issue and draw the military um, card. The issue of post hegemonic or hegemonic or counter-hegemonic. Um, coercion and consent. Conflict and consent. Um, I think only in a, uh, in a world of post-politics there's consent, only consent. That's post-politics. When there's no conflict, there's no politics anymore. Um, so I, I would say, but that's a, maybe a very theoretical response, that um, there will be conflict and there's also coercion. Uh, not uh, particular uh, in, 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 in relation to the PKK's ideology or the Rojava experience uh, as a part of, uh, I think, of, uh, of, uh, of life, of, uh, of human existence, of our political existence, and our existence is... I think, political. That's an answer, but that's at least my response. Okay, very deep in this here. We're almost out of time, but we do have one last question at the very back. Thank you, sir, for being so patient. We'll finish with your question. Thank you. Hi. So my name is Andrea Iotti. I'm a journalist who has spent a long time, actually, in Rojava and Syria in general. I was living even with local families and so on. I just would like to point that I, I, I mean... Personally, one of the main controversial aspects of Rojava is actually when apologists tend to brush away democratic experiences in the rest of Syria. 
is to say that local councils have been infiltrated by jihadis and there are no grassroots activism nowadays. This is factually wrong because even nowadays in some of the local councils in Idlib you have people resisting the Nusra Front in Maharat Numan and demonstrating for hundreds of days. You have elections in Khan where they had like chemical attacks and regardless of the chemical attacks they are still having some sort of grassroots democracy. So honestly, and I would differentiate as well the fact that Rojava was not under heavy air force shelling, and that was also a privilege, and that was part of the pragmatic relationship that they had with the, with the Syrian regime. Uh, so I think when we, if they really want to be inclusive, they need to include other grassroots democratic experiences from the other parts of Syria, not only to annex territories and then claim to, study, claim to include other communities. And secondly, I would say that the, the issue of like education as well is much more controversial because like recently there have been also demonstrations in the streets against the fact they've been banning Arabic in private um, uh, tuition centers and that even Kurds were protesting against that because that's, that means also that they cannot go on and carry on their studies <coughs> in Syrian universities and that to me is, I mean, it's, a, it's an outcome of a nationalist policy not of an inclusive one towards other communities and even some Kurds were opposed to that. And lastly, the economic model, yeah, cooperatives are a positive model of course, but at the same time there are well-known war profiters that are doing business <laughs> with the local administrations and people there, if you go and speak with them, they even know the names of these guys who have control over livestock and that's not so progressive. Honestly. So I think constructive criticism has to be part of the whole development of the Rojava experience. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, and I, I fully agree with the uh, with the with the last comments. Uh, I think it's also one of the things I mentioned yeah, that uh, at the at the end, uh, without giving any example, but that uh, history develops by looking at the bad side, and that these are issues which definitely needs to be uh, discussed. Also, well, of course, first of all, uh, in Rojava or in Syria. Uh, itself, but also uh, among uh, among us, um, and well, thanks for the correction on the assemblies in other parts of Syria. Obviously, uh, um, I, uh, I I overlook them, uh, um, or we have a different uh, assessment of them. But probably I have overlooked uh, those. Uh, my main focus is uh, is uh, actually Rojava and, uh, and northern Syria. Maybe I should have refrained from any comment on uh, the existence of uh, assemblies in other parts of, uh, of Syria today. But thanks uh, for, uh, Thank you, for joining Thank and, you. Uh, Just and before listening. We, before we close, we have another great event coming up on Monday the 6th of November for a change of tack come and hear the well-known Lebanese satirist Karl Remarks it's going to be a very entertaining evening about how his native land is represented in the western media and punditry well, that's one to look out for but for now thank you Yus for a wonderful evening's lecture thank you, thank you.